are you justified in the sight of a holy God? When the Bible uses the word justification, what does it really mean? Do works play any role at all in justification? Can the historic divides over this issue ever be overcome? We talk about that and much more on today's Theology on Air. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Theology on Air. We're on Facebook Live on a Friday afternoon. This will be on the KPFT Airwaves next Thursday at 5 o'clock from their HD2 studio. Hopefully, uh, once, once this COVID-19 business runs its course, we'll be back in studio uh, you know, with better sound quality and all that kind of good stuff. But for now, we're able to uh, congregate via the remarkable technologies of Zoom and Facebook and whatnot and all the other technologies that made that possible. And so we're glad to be with you. Uh, normally, this show is uh, live every Thursday at 5 o'clock on the HD2 channel of KPFT 90.1 here in uh, Houston, Texas. And uh, But for now, we're doing things... Uh, you know, whenever we can do them. And um, so that's my wife calling me on the phone. I have to decline that. I told her I was doing a radio show today at 1230. Ha ha. Um, but very glad to be joined today by Paul Sloan. I'm going to introduce him in a minute. However, I've got to tell folks who are listening in KPFT land, this is our, uh, our fun drive right now. So uh, KPFT is listener-supported, community-sponsored radio. We bring you commercial-free conversations that no one else is going to bring. We bring you, I believe, uh, a lot of religious content that no one else is going to, uh, no one else is going to bring you either. So, uh, if you're a Christian in Houston and uh, you you want more Christian radio that really talks at the issues, that has debates and interesting conversations, give to KPFT. Go to kpft.org to learn uh, more how to do that. Uh, and uh, so please do support the arts because that's really uh, what KPFT is. It's community-sponsored radio in Houston that supports a wide variety of, uh, of points of view. So kpft.org uh, to learn that. And if you're a podcast listener and you're listening in like Spokane, Washington or something, and you're like, I don't care about radio in Houston. Well, they allow us to do this as a podcast as well. So if you chipped in 10 bucks to KPFT in the name of Theology on Air, we'd sure appreciate it. By the way, I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor at First Lutheran here in Houston, flhouston.org. And uh, yeah, been doing this show for a while, have a lot of fun doing it, and want to keep on diving into the theological and biblical areas. And that's, again, what we're going to be doing today. All right, I've got Paul Sloan with me. He is a professor at HBU, uh, has his PhD in New Testament uh, from the University of St. Andrews. His research areas include the literature of the New Testament and Second Temple Judaism. Current research focuses on Leviticus, the sacrificial system, and sacred space, and the reception of those motifs in Second Temple text. Uh, he just had an interesting dialogue with Colin Kerr on LGBT issues in the church. So uh, if you haven't found that on the podcast feed or on YouTube, uh, it's in both places. In fact, the YouTube version is an extra bonus content version I'd highly recommend you seek out on YouTube. So, uh, Paul, how are you doing today? Yeah, not bad. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Good deal. All right. Well, as I say, Paul's our resident uh, you know, Bible expert, Bible answer man. So every every podcast should have one of those. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to, to do a show on justification for a lot of reasons. And, and actually, this is um, really the first of kind of a three-part series we're doing. This is the first. The second one we're going to look at next week, kind of what is real Christianity and how does this issue kind of play into that? Where does the law fit in to that? Um, but we'll come, come back to that. And then the third issue we've already recorded, it's a conversation with James Walker that looks at a variety of, of kind of cults, which takes teachings of Jesus and shifts them. But let's kind of lay some groundwork. We want to talk about justification. It's kind of the big issue of the, the Reformation. So it, uh, 
You know, and you would think that uh, given that we uh, have been created by a holy God, we know that God exists, we have the image of God within us, that um, how we are made right before a holy God should be a like preeminent question in our hearts and minds. Um, so somehow or other, the Reformation was needed to cure all that. But let's take a step back. Uh, what does the Bible mean when it talks about justification? Where does it come up in the Bible? And um, what, what do we really mean when we are, are asking how someone is justified in the sight of God? Yeah, no, those are, those are great questions. I mean, the, the, the term itself, um, the, the most prominent places that it occurs in the New Testament are in uh, Romans and in Galatians. Um, it occurs elsewhere, but those, are, those seem to be the, the central texts where Paul is sort of laying out a position over against um, uh, potential interlocutors that might, might make a different position. Um, whether they were missionaries who came into a, a given community afterward, or whether he's just laying out his own his own his own statement um, um, in in Romans, uh, those are the most kind of prominent places. Um, I mean, the the reason it should be and and, and ought to, ought to be um, at the forefront of all, all of you know Christian di- Christian thinking about about God and about ourselves um, is that um, it's not just a, sort of an um, individualistic thing that that the, the the individual of course finds his or her place within the larger scheme. But when you're talking about justification, um, you're also talking about how God is setting the whole world right, um, and how He's uh, setting um, His creation uh, anew. So when you're talking about justification, um, you're not immediately talking about the same thing, but it, you're not not talking about new creation as well. Uh, to say that positively, uh, to talk about justification is also uh, to relate to how God will restore all of creation. In, in other words, it's not just, a, um, you know, how am I personally made right with God, but how does God make all things right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then how do you as an individual fit into that larger scheme? Yeah. Okay. So um, we first hear about, well, I don't know about first, but uh, certainly the most prominent place we hear about justification, because it's referenced, as you said, in Galatians, uh, is early on in Genesis uh, with Abraham. Yeah. And we are told that uh, Abram, actually at this time it's Abram, is, is reckoned as righteous. And so what, what does the author, I would say Moses, but what does the author of Genesis mean when he, he says that? Yeah, well, I mean, that itself is a big topic of debate. I yeah. mean, so, I mean, what it, I mean, because the language is he was reckoned as righteous in Genesis, uh, uh, I think that's 16 at that point. Yeah, the, the first, in the Abram narratives when, he's, when he's, um, he's, he's making his covenant with Abram. And so that's actually the big question as to what does it even mean when he says it to Abraham, because it's precisely those texts that Paul draws upon in Romans and Galatians. And so what it means in Genesis um, is, uh, conditions, uh, at, at the very least, what, what Paul means by it when he says it. Um, so there are a lot of options. I mean, the very, it, it, I, I, I take it to mean uh, that because he is, because God is making his covenant with Abram at that time, to be reckoned righteous, uh, you have to think, understand what the word righteous or righteousness um, means. And that word righteous or righteousness is a legal term. Um, and the legal framework within which that term is operative is, I think, the covenant, uh, because the covenant is itself a legal agreement between two parties. So here's the basic way I, de- I define covenant. A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties. This legal agreement creates or codifies a relationship between the two parties, and it contains 
uh, obligations and promises um, that each each party will make. God makes promises that He will deliver, um, and the recipients of these covenants covenants are then obligated to um, the superior party. In this case, of course, it's God. So to be reckoned righteous um, is is uh, uh, that that term righteousness is a legal status, and the legal framework within which that status uh, means what it means is the legal covenant agreement. So to be reckoned righteous um, indicates that Abraham is a member of the covenant with God. Yeah. And we would say right away, this is a gift of God, right? I mean, Abraham wasn't out there going, well, yeah. 10 more years of good works and I can finally be declared righteous. Yeah, but rather, yeah. this is, we would say pretty clearly biblically, this is a gift from God, that this is yeah. a, a sovereign act of God. Uh-huh. And now we, we're using language that, you know, we do fight about in the church, you know, yeah. where does sovereignty kind of begin and end and such. Sure. But, but I think that all of the Reformed traditions would speak clearly. Yes, about and, and, and not even just the Reformed traditions. That actually is an important point. Um, I mean, the classically pre-Reformed traditions would also talk about it in terms of an incongruous gift, mm. um, that grace was itself something that was incongruously given um, to, to the recipients. Incongruous meaning that um, the the worthiness of the recipient was not measured before the gift was given. Mm. In other words, Abraham wasn't reckoned to be awesome. And then God said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. God made the covenant with him. Um, and it was, it was an, inaugurated by God. And the, the grace that God showed to Abraham was uh, incongruous with Abraham's merit. Yeah. So, um, and I should have said, uh, it might be Galatians, but Romans 1 is what I was thinking of, because Romans 1, um, I'll just read it from the ESV. For, if, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, and um, so Luther kind of picks up on this, and this is one of his insights that kind of leads to the Reformation, as we as we'll say, we'll get to that in just a moment. But Sarah did have a question, and she she wanted that she's watching, I think, from Florida. So she wanted to know if we're going to distinguish the popular meaning of justification as salvation. And I, I think what she means by that, a lot of times people will equate justification with salvation. Yeah. And, and, and really, you know, when we talk about salvation, we're talking about a whole picture of which justification is a, is a piece. Is that right? Yeah, that's accurate. I mean, you'll, you'll often get... Uh, in, in popular discourse, um, Ephesians 2 will often be quoted as, look, you were justified um, by grace through faith, etc. Um, when he actually says you were saved by grace through faith. Mm. Um, and, and similarly, people will quote that Ephesians 2 passage, you were saved by grace, as if that's the same thing as saying you were justified by grace. That's a, uh, a, a good example of how the popular uses can conflate justification and salvation, even if they will, um, even if those who are justified will be saved, that's not to say that those terms indicate or mean this percentage. Right, yeah, because in addition to justification, there's sanctification or the... the, 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 the becoming sacred, yeah. Becoming, yeah, becoming more holy. sacred, holy, yes, and then, you know, glorification, which we understand as, as happening essentially upon death, Um and I guess for some people, deification, but uh, I don't think Orthodox Christians. But, uh, but yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a process, um, you know, of which justification is a piece. Now, this is what can often d- divide traditions as well, because 
particularly in Rome, as I understand it, and certainly in the East, um, which I'm no expert on either, but, you know, when they talk about justification, they, they don't talk about a one-time event, you know, that sort of, you know, and, you know, so you're justified at this kind of linear point in time. This is how yeah. typically the Reformed think about it. And then over the course of your life, you're sanctified. Then at your death, you're glorified. Mm-hmm. They kind of talk about all that happening at once. You know, it's all kind of going on at the same time. You know, you're, you're being justified. Right, right. And um, as you're being sanctified, um, and of course, you could lose your justification. So I don't know if you want to speak to kind of the way, I mean, does the Bible kind of give a clear answer in your mind of whether or not justification is a kind of one-time event, or is it something that's always going on? Yeah, so um, a a few things. I I feel like I need to back up then, because I feel like at at some point, we're probably going to disambiguate the different perspectives here. And so do, if we, we could do that first, disambiguate the different perspectives before I jump into sort of my own, just because I, I, I think that, um, like, for example, N.T. Wright has done a lot of work on justification in the, in, within the kind of so-called new perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that itself uh, needs to be disambiguated from kind of other perspectives. So, yeah, if you, would you mind actually giving just like a, a thousand foot level view of sort of the Reformation view of justification before I sort of come in with how the new perspective. Sure. I'll, I'll do my best. Um, well, let's, let's look at it a little bit historically too, right? Because it's kind of impossible to think about the, the reformation and the theology that came out of it without thinking about what kind of spurned that, right? So essentially you, you have, you know, two churches in a certain respect, you have the church of the East and the church of the West, the church of the East had, you know, four, you know, great leaders in the West. You ended up really with the Pope in Rome and you ended up with a very kind of hyper powerful, what we would call Roman Catholic Church. And within that, then, there was a constant ongoing system by which people were um, afraid of, of, of you know, the, the, you know the, the punishment of hell. And so the church sort of, we would say, used that to constantly get them to be working for their justification. So in the Reformation era, you would have had something like indulgences, which most people who study this sort of thing, I'm sure, have heard about. But basically, it was something you could buy from the church to get out of purgatory, Purgatory is where you essentially go when you die on Roman Catholics, Roman Catholicism's teaching to be purged of the sins uh, because you cannot enter heaven without being purified, and purgatory is where you go to be purified. And they talk about Paul, uh, in, I think 1 Corinthians 3, kind of like straw being burned and, you know, sort of that, that, that you know, being trod off hour kind of thing. Anyway, um, so you had these sort of you you but there are lots of ways to be uh to be purified or get an indulgence. You could take a pilgrimage to Rome or other holy places. You could go to reliquaries and see relics. There are all these sort of things you could do to accumulate merit, and you could also get merit from the leftover merit in the treasury of merit, uh, which saints possessed because they had like abundant you know sort of merit to give to you for your justification. Okay, so. What Luther basically argued is that, wait a minute, if the, if the death of Christ on the cross isn't sufficient for our justification, if we have to do all these other stuff, then we're really negating what Paul talks about, which is that, you know, we are really, as you said, saved by grace through faith alone. And so the Reformed traditions, I would say that by and large, the I would say by and large, the Lutheran, the Calvinist, and the Anabaptists, uh, agree on the on the sufficiency of grace for salvation. So it's not just that grace is necessary, but that grace is sufficient, that it does what is needed. 
And uh, grace is given by God. You know, now we get into kind of complex questions about election and so forth and the absolute sovereignty of God and these sorts of things. Um, Do we cooperate with God? That would be a key word to understand. Uh, Roman Catholicism still teaches cooperation, has for many, many centuries. And the idea is that you are cooperating, cooperating with God and your salvation. Sure, you can't do good works without grace, but you have to do, uh, you essentially have to do them um, you know, having received God's grace for your salvation. Now, are you looking for kind of distinct distinctions between like Protestants or so forth or? or? No, I think that's what, what you said, what you did is helpful. Um, I was just wanting to get some sort of like just the, the so-called Lutheran view on the map before we start contradistinguishing it from the new perspective view right. or, or quote my view or something like that. Right. Well, one of my irritations with Lutheranism, and I think I can say this as a Lutheran pastor, is that okay. The, the issue of justification, of course, was greatly needed in the Reformation because of all the corruptions and the false teachings going on at the time in this monopolistic church known as Rome, the Roman Catholic Church. And so justification ends up, in my view, getting this sort of outsized um, doctrinal importance. And well, it, there was a needed corrective, right, to, to help people understand that purgatory and good works and so on and so forth were not going to merit you salvation or justification, but it was, it was solely a gift of God. And so this becomes the most important thing that the church teaches. It teaches that the church stands or falls on the doctrine of justification, and it's this just really radical emphasis that good works cannot save. They do not save. And so there's a very sharp distinction. So if you suggest anything at all that might suggest, that might, if you said, in many Lutheran churches today, if you said something like Christians ought to obey the law, I mean, probably half of the Lutheran pastors in the room would flip out, okay? Because what do you mean Christians ought to obey the law? You're now imposing the law on me. I thought that's what we had the whole Reformation for, was to get rid of this oughtness of obedience. Mm-hmm. And so um, what, what's ended up happening is that we kind of have preached this message for all these centuries that was a necessary corrective at the time, but I think that what we're kind of missing now is maybe what you might call the whole counsel of God. And so where we're at now is this, you know, I think like, and I don't really understand the new perspective, you'll explain it, but you have people kind of, I think, pushing back at this and going, you know, Luther and Calvin were a little bit anachronistic and uh, they, they maybe emphasize the right thing at the right time, but now we need to kind of look at the bigger picture. And what was, was Paul kind of just talking about ceremonial law when he talks about law, laws for the Jews, or is he talking about the whole of the moral law? So those are things we kind of have to ferret out. But basically, if I had to summarize the the Lutheran position, is that we have a kind of extremist view in many ways on understanding grace and justification, that it's this thing that, you know, God does uh, totally without us, and that we don't even preach good works among Christians. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, yeah, so uh, taking that, just sort of pin, pin that against the wall, and then... Um, it might be helpful to describe briefly just a couple of different representatives of the new perspective before moving into our own discussion about yep. and how do we actually read these texts. Uh, because the, the question that you and I are really asking is, what is the role of good works in sort of the life of the Christian? How do they sort of weigh in the balance, as it were, in the final judgment, all that sort of stuff? Um, and so... And I would, uh, I would throw out too quickly, how do you know what is a good work and what is not? You know, what, okay. what, would, what would your standard be for that? Yeah, um, okay. You know, but we'll yeah, come back to that. Yeah. That, 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 that's a very helpful uh, thing. Yeah. Um, so um, 
really briefly, in the very early 20th century, a couple scholars, uh, Montefiore and um, a guy named George Foot Moore, uh, Moore, M-O-O-R-E, um, they attempted to uh, provide a corrective to Protestant teaching about, um, about Judaism and about the law. Um, so George Foot Moore in particular wrote some large volumes saying, look, the Protestant view the way that Protestants talk about Judaism is is itself anachronistic and totally and totally uh, um, overblown. Um, and his point was that Judaism was not sort of a religion of works. It was a religion that was based in, on grace and that works themselves were um, the sort of just the act of loving obedience toward the God who had already rescued you, that sort of thing. Um, George Footmore wasn't heralded as, as he ought to have been in his own time. And it, it wasn't really until the uh, late 70s that uh, E.P. Sanders wrote a book called Fallen Palestinian Judaism, um, in which he offered a corrective that was then heeded, uh, in, which he, in which he said, um, look, Judaism is not sort of this, um, this, this religion of, this legalistic religion of works righteousness. It was, it was a religion that was based on God's inaugurating grace that God established the covenant with Israel and that then the works that they were commanded to do were themselves works done in response to God's act of love and grace, all that sort of stuff. Um, and so his, his, um, his, his basic line is that, um, uh, that grace was just sort of the, the modus operandi of all Jewish thinking about how they thought about their own obedience. Um, that then kind of launched um, New Testament studies has since then seen itself in sort of a post Sanders stage. Um, and scholars like uh, uh, James Dunn and N.T. Wright sort of picked up uh, that, that football and run with it. Um, Dunn in particular, um, his view of, of justification is that when Paul is critiquing works of the law, what he was primarily had uh, in his sights, in other words, what Paul was really critiquing when he critiques works of the law, isn't works in general or morals in general or obedience in general, or even necessarily all the time the whole law. What he was critiquing was the works that functioned as a social barrier between Jews and Gentiles. So for example, circumcision was a, was a, a mark that distinguished Jew from Gentile. And the Jewish food laws were, were, were um, activities that distinguished Jews socially. And um, Dunn's point is that, look, now that God has raised the Messiah, and now that God has given his spirit to the Gentiles, that demonstrates for Paul that God is including the Gentiles. And if God is including the Gentiles, that must mean that um, belonging to the covenant cannot be a thing that uh, uh, um, is proper to Jews alone. And if it's not proper to Jews alone, but can also include Gentiles as Gentiles, then they get to belong without having to uh, go through those um, gates of, of particular Jewish distinctives like circumcision and food law, et cetera. In other words, if God is joining Jew and Gentile together, then the laws that are particular to Jews are, no, are, are relativized. Um, because now Jews and Gentiles belong together. So that's, that's kind of Dunn's big point. Um, Wright agrees with that, but then adds the notion that, look, the, the main plight that Paul is critiquing isn't sort of works righteousness. 
the plight that Paul is critiquing when he critiques works of the law. So, for example, in Galatians 2 and 3, whenever Paul says, uh, you're not justified by works of the law because, because the law only dispenses a curse. And if, if you are of works of the law, you are under a curse, but Christ you know, became a curse for us. Wright's big point there is that, look, Israel historically broke the law, and so the law dispensed its curse. And so now for anyone to identify with Israel via doing works of the law, all they would be doing is entering into the cursed state that the law now dispenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the manifestation of that curse is the prolonged exile, uh, is what Wright says. And so he would say, look, what Paul is critiquing when he critiques works of the law are A, the Jewish distinctives, but also B, just that the stage of the story that Israel finds themselves in, namely that once they've broken it, the law only dispenses curse. So don't go back under the law because all of us dispense curse. Um, and besides, Christ has now rescued us. Um, and in that rescue, the new creation has started. So now that the new creation has started, you do the things that belong, that, that are appropriate for that new creation stage. So that's kind of Wright's big point. Um, I find myself in large, not total, large agreement with NT right there. Before I move on, I'll maybe stop in case you have any kind of follow-up questions or... Well, let me say, let me ask, in Paul's writings, isn't it possible or likely that that sometimes he's talking about law and he is meaning specific ceremonial laws of the Hebrew tradition and sometimes he's speaking about the the universality of the the moral law that we cannot perfectly obey? Um, I mean... Theoretically, I suppose it's possible. I would, I would have a tough time finding a place where he's referring to sort of some universal law that wasn't just the Mosaic law. Okay. In other words, I think every time he says law, he's referring to the Mosaic law given at Sinai. Mosaic, uh, and, and you mean really specifically ceremonial? I mean, not, I mean because no, there's moral law part of Mosaic. There's the word namas, which is the word law. Mm-hmm. He's referring to the, the body of laws given from God to Moses, Moses to Israel at Mount Sinai. Okay, so um, he has a, a limited, he's not speaking about like, he's say, of, original he's sin. Deuteronomy. Okay, yeah. but you, so you wouldn't say he's kind of describing the, I mean, like Romans 1, he seems to maybe have more of a universal scope there, would you say? Whereas, but that's not a text we would go to for justification, really. Well, no, I mean, you're right. He does have, a, I think he has a more broadly universal scope, but there, notice that, he actually precisely says that they should have known not to commit idolatry. They should have known that via nature. Mm. Um, In other words, when he starts talking about the law in Romans two, it's precisely the thing that Gentiles did not have because only Jews by nature have the law because Jews are born into the covenant and are born into a covenant system in which the law is sort of the modus operandi. Whereas for Gentiles, if you look at uh, Romans two, um, 14, he says, now, for whatever nations who by nature do not have the law, nonetheless do them, the things of the law, they are a law unto themselves, etc. Yeah. Um, and so it, when he is talking about Gentiles, he thinks they are by nature people who don't have law. And I think that itself sort of demonstrates that what he's talking about is the, the body of legislation given to Moses, given to the people of Israel. Gotcha. Gotcha. The short name for that, I just call it the Mosaic Law. Right. Gotcha. So, like yeah. Romans three nineteen, for example. Um, yes. And and we always, you know, every Reformation, you know, this is yeah. this is one of those passages we'll read. For example, 
Uh, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Mm-hmm. For by works of the law, now again, when you're saying when he says law there, namas, he is saying Deuteron- you know, Levitical law, essentially. Yeah, yeah, the Mosaic okay. law codified in, in, so, in Leviticus, yep. Okay, so let, I, so I would say, for by works of the Levitical code, let's say, no human okay. being will be justified in a sight, since through the Levitical code comes knowledge of sin. You, uh-huh. you think I'm not? I don't. I'm. I'm not critiquing. I'm just asking. Like you would think that yeah. would be a fair reading. The Mosaic law. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Law gotcha. Okay. To, yeah. God given to In fact, to then to justify <clears throat> that point, um, I would then take you to Romans three um, twenty eight where, again, notice the same language is used, justified by faith, etc. For we reckon that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of the Jews only? Right. No, he's also the God of the Gentiles. Yes, also the Gentiles. Therefore, because God is one, he will justify the Jews, i.e. the circumcision, mm-hmm. by faith, and he'll, circumc- he'll, he'll justify the foreskin, i.e. Uh, Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Okay. In other words, notice that unless, unless the law is the Mosaic law in 328, 329 is a non sequitur. Mm. The follow-up question just doesn't make sense as a follow-up question if what he's talking about is sort of a universal law, right? Yeah. yeah. It seems um, to be precisely what only Jews have. Gotcha. Okay, so... Um, in, in, in Rome, do you think that congregation was largely Jewish then, would you say? I mean, or... No, I think the congregation was largely Gentile. Um, okay. Uh, it's, it seems to be a mixed, con- a mixed congregation. In, um, in Romans 16, he greets uh, a bunch of people, and most of them seem to be, um, or excuse me, a lot of them are, are yeah. Jews, and, but more of them are Gentiles. So Let me... the congregation is uh, mixed. Even if he's only addressing this letter to Gentiles, which I think is possible, but mm. the by the time of the New Testament, uh, you know, Israel changed a lot from Leviticus days, right? I mean, you know, they they had settled the land, they'd had you know splits, oh, yes, they'd had yes, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So kind of in, in in like for example, the Sadducees and Pharisees are are present in the New Testament and not in yeah. the in the old. And the you know the idea is that they developed during that intertestamental period of where God was not sending prophets and God was not speaking. And the idea was that. You know, they're, they, we see them as highly legalistic, and I mean, they, they are legalistic. I don't know why I'm using square, square quotes, but they were highly legalistic in that they were trying to apply the law in yeah. this ongoing time and all of that. Um, but they, they might have a kind of outsized influence to a degree in the uh, New Testament, and it might lead Christians to believe that that is to be Jewish, that to be a Pharisee or a Sadducee, that's just how all Jews always were. But in, right. in fact, in the, uh, in the Old Testament, do you believe that it would have been the case then as well that, uh, that the phrase, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, could, could a, a Jew in 1500 BC, as we would say, um, say that? Um, I think so, at least I, I, because, let me, let me be clear here, a few things. One, yeah. um, make sure I've got this right looking at the text. Um, yeah, I, the reason I would give a qualified yes is because mm-hmm. Paul's quoting a psalm when he says that. Ah, 
I mean, that's Psalm 143, right? And Psalm gotcha. 143 says, don't enter, my, enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight, no living man is righteous. Mm. Um, or in fact, he says, no, no, no one will be justified before you. Gotcha. And so it seems, I mean, the psalmist could say something like that. Now, of course, like, I feel like I can hear like other New Testament specialists listening to this podcast and all their alarm bells going off. And they're like, okay, well, that's really not going to You can't just like take Paul's quotation of the psalm and say that that's how like all Jews would have read it, you know, a thousand years before. That's not what I'm saying. But my, my point is, is that, yeah, I, I do think it's possible. So, I mean, before we get lost in the weeds here, I mean, let, let, let me give my view just as briefly yeah. as I can. And yeah. maybe that will help if you respond to it. So I think that I think that the basic understanding, the basic paradigm um, that Sanders and other people uh, um, mentioned about the law is is appropriate. When God gave the law, He didn't say, "Obey this, and you'll be my covenant people." God had already rescued them, rescued them from Egypt, had already uh, and gave them the law, and then, of course, He gave them. This is so important. He gave them the sacrificial system. So He dwelt inside the tabernacle that was in their very midst, the tabernacle that He Himself told them to build. Um, and then that later gets made into the temple. So uh, God himself dwells in their very midst. He has rescued them. He has inaugurated his covenant. He has made promises to them. And then he gives them this law and says, these are the uh, stipulations of being faithful to my covenant. If you keep these stipulations, um, the covenant is maintained. If you ever transgress these stipulations, transgress these stipulations, that doesn't mean you're out of the covenant you can make sacrifices and be forgiven and be restored and be still a member of the covenant. So commission of transgression does not breach the covenant. Israel was not required to be morally perfect in order to be members of the covenant. They could commit transgressions and the covenant would remain intact because they could then make sacrifices by which God promised to forgive them. So, um, sacrifices themselves weren't sort of acts of manipulation on God. God himself says that I gave you these sacrifices. So mm. um, the, then the question is, well, then how do they actually break the covenant? And Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 are really clear. Deuteronomy 28 through 31 and uh, Leviticus 26 are really clear that how Israel breaks the covenant is by following after other gods. If Israel follows after other gods, then the covenant is broken and all the benefits of the covenant cease to be operative. In other words, once they break the covenant, God departs the temple, sacrifices stop being accepted. Um, they are taken over by their enemies, spiritual and international. They're exiled out of the land, all that sort of stuff. Now, that's just sort of, I think, sort of basic Old Testament theology, right? Yeah. Now, enter in sort of like sec- sort of like this so-called intertestamental period or Second Temple Judaism. Um, a lot of Jews read that Old Testament narrative as ongoing into their own day. Not every Jew and not every Jewish sect did this, but a a good number of Jewish groups and Jewish major Jewish texts read the Old Testament precisely that way and viewed themselves in an ongoing plight, in an ongoing situation. So it said, okay, yes, Israel had returned to the land after exile. They had rebuilt the temple, but there was a question mark over that temple. Were the sacrifices being accepted? Was God actually in the temple? Um, Malachi says explicitly no, that the sacrifices are not being accepted and that God is not in the temple. It's just an, it's, it's that, and that's, that's 100 years after it was rebuilt and after they returned to the land. So it's very explicit there. The New Testament sort of opens up on that stage. 
the idea is that this ongoing plight needs to be resolved. Um, now, kind of situate Paul within that, with that stage of the narrative, and I think that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, we got into this plight of being all, under all these curses because we broke the law. More law-keeping won't reverse this curse. We won't get out of this plight by more law-keeping. Um, we're in this plight because we broke the law. And now the only way that you get out from under these curses is to endure them and to come out the other side of them. More law-keeping doesn't, it, doesn't itself obviate the curse. Mm. That's why he says Christ became a curse for us. And then quite clearly in Romans, that we actually don't sidestep the curse either. We actually die with Christ. Mm. That's why it's, I think, quite important to say that all this stuff goes together. Atonement theology, justi justification, the doctrine of the resurrection, the doctrine of Christ's death, all this stuff goes together because Paul's point is that the curse of the law is death and you actually don't get to sidestep it by dying with Christ. You have participated in mm. the fullness of all the covenant curses. And now because Christ has been raised and you've been raised with him, you are now on the other side of the covenant curses as it were, and mm. are members of the new covenant. Gotcha. Language in 2 Corinthians 3. So mm. now the same spirit who resurrected Christ now dwells in you. And this is where Paul, I think, has this strong notion of the fact the spirit has raised you ahead of time, as it were. You're not bodily resurrected yet, but you're sort of participating in the life of the spirit because you're in Christ and Christ is the spirit, all this stuff. So the spirit now dwells in the community. And then Paul very clearly says in Romans 8, now, this, now I'll stop talking and we can start having the dialogue again. In Romans 8, he says, therefore... I'll just read it. People always think I'm making it up. <clears throat> uh, therefore, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, the Spirit that indwells the whole community, you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So he goes on, of course. So this is where I would say I have zero problem at all, using the language of obligation and ought, um, as it were, uh, because A, not, not simply because Paul uses it. I mean, that's a big deal. I, Paul does use it in 8.12, but it seems to be just going with the whole flow of where the New Testament is taking us. I mean, the, the, the old covenant was broken because of disobedience, and in all the new covenant promises in, say, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all those, all those prophecies are say, say that once God sort of restores the people, Israel, from the covenant, then he'll circumcise their hearts, then he'll give them the spirit, and then they'll finally obey all of God's decrees. Mm, mm. And yeah, so, they'll, they'll, they'll want to do good works. Exactly. And so yeah. then, is, is then how does that situate in sort of the new covenant territory? And Paul's writing to Gentiles. Paul's not writing to Jews. And so um, Paul, in writing to Gentiles, I don't think he thinks the full Mosaic law is incumbent upon them. But he does say quite clearly, say in 1 Corinthians 7, um, that circumcision matters for nothing and uncircumcision matters for nothing. But what matters is keeping God's commands. Mm. Um, and then he goes on and he, he, his, 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 his moral exhortations often allude to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I mean, he kicks a guy out of the Corinthian community for violating a standard of... Mm -hmm. Leviticus 18. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, why would he do that? If he let's, 
Leviticus yeah. 18 were operative in the moral formation of the community. Let's take a step. Let's take a step back. Um, okay. Good. You know, yeah. I, I just for for first of all, I want to remind KPFT listeners: you're listening to really interesting conversation about kind of the nitty gritty of how people justify themselves before a holy God. So if that's something that's on your mind, well, we're trying to provide an answer for you. Uh, okay. uh, but yeah, so KPFT, uh, we do need your support. We're in the midst of our, our, our fundraising right now uh, for this spring. So we do encourage you to go to kpft.org and donate as you can. We would sure appreciate it if you did so in the name of Theology on Air. We're here every Thursday at five o'clock to, um, to bring you interesting theological, uh, social commentary, questions, debates, uh, on uh, on questions of eternal and timely significance. So check us out, Theology on Air, Ministry of Theology on Tap, facebook.com slash Theology on Tap Houston. Um, okay, super, super duper duper big picture. All right, there is this God, he created everything, he's holy and good. His his very nature is that of perfection and holiness and goodness, that uh, otherness, right, that, 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 um, that at one time in the Garden of Eden, we would say, we, 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 uh, we're, we're close to, not identical with, but we are close to that sense of goodness. Mm-hmm. But we fell into sin, and whether Adam's the federal head or however we figure it out, or it's, you know, as Augustine, a, original sin is passed down, we find ourselves in a sinful condition. That's, yeah. I think, my bottom line on that. It's like, if yeah. you don't think that sin is a problem, just like take an inventory of yourself kind of deal. Anyway, right, right, we right. find ourselves in this sinful situation. The meta picture is that we need to be rescued from this. Um, we know that we offend a holy God. In the Old Testament, we see a system of sacrifices by which we could be reminded of God's holiness and be restored to God, mm-hmm. um, so long as we weren't chasing after other gods. Right. Um, and um, um, and in Christ— I'll, I'll, I'll even kind of jump in yeah. right there. I'll say that that pattern is repeated in the New Testament. Okay. In in Christ, I mean, he is the 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 God Man who who dies for the sacrifice of sin. So there's this last covenant, if you will, where the the sacrifice is offered, and this promise of justification then, or this promise of being okay to come into the sight of God now is offered through Christ. So yeah. it's faith in Him that sort of substitutes yeah. the sacrificial system. Now, how does it go on in the in the New Testament? Because now this is where you and I are going to disagree. I'm sure, okay. but it is, this will be interesting, and we can maybe it'll be a good good fodder for another podcast. Um, I don't think the cross is sufficient okay. because he, what he says is, I still think the work of the work of Christ is sufficient, but I would, ex- I would include within the phrase, the work of Christ, not simply the cross, but also mm-hmm. the resurrection, the ascension and his current session as high priest. So, so let me, let me jump in because Sunday for us was ascension Sunday. Yeah. It, it was of course the Thursday before, but we, Nobody shows up on a Thursday night. So yeah. we celebrate the Ascension, the sixth Sunday of Easter. And yeah. I ended, I remembered that you had said this during our podcast on the atonement, which if people haven't listened to, they should, but you and Laurie and Hook did. Yeah. And so I ended up researching a little bit. And by researching, I mean Googling. Um, but found That's some really, yeah, I mean, there's great, I mean, it worked, you know, I found some really great articles. One oh, by right. um, Peter Lightheart, for example, where he oh, talks cool. about a book that was written that talks about the importance of the Ascension uh, in the, as as the final act of the atonement. And yeah. so my sermon ended up being about how the, the cross isn't the only thing going on with the atonement. We also yeah. need resurrection and ascension because it's at the yeah. ascension where Jesus finally sits down, right? Yeah. Seated at the right hand of the Father because his priestly duties are done. Yeah. And you know, the high priest is there or the priest, you know, they're in the they're standing up doing the sacrifices all day long, as the author right. of Hebrews says. But Jesus yeah. Can now he presents himself as that great sacrifice. So when right. you say 
the work of sacrifice is ongoing, would you say it's because Christ is sort of continually presenting himself as a sacrifice? So um, I wouldn't say that the work of sacrifice is necessarily ongoing. What I'd say is that Christ's activity of high priest is ongoing. Mm. In other words, what happened when Christ, at, at the ascension, what he, didn't, he didn't simply ascend and then sit down. For the, in, the early, uh, in the New Testament, particularly you'll see it in the book of Hebrews, but I think you also get glimpses of it in Acts 5 and I think in Romans 8. Um, what he, when he ascends, he ascends into the heavenly space, which is, which is itself understood to be a tabernacle or a temple. Mm. Heaven itself is understood to be sort of God's sacred space. And so a lot of Jews would say this differently. Some, some would say that the heaven was a tabernacle, or some would say that there was a tabernacle in the heavenly space. All of it's to say that in Hebrews, the author is quite clear. I mean, he says it explicitly that he entered into the tabernacle in heaven um, and there offered himself. Um, and, and then after having made purification, then he sat down. So I would say that his, uh, when he ascended into the heavenly space, he then offered himself and functioned there, functioned as mm-hmm. an atoning um, sacrifice. I think that's what's going on in, in Hebrews. In Romans yeah. 8, you get a glimpse where he says, um, you know, who's going to condemn? Uh, um, who can, let's see, where is it? Uh, what then shall we say? 834. Who will condemn Christ who died, but more was raised? and who is at the right hand of God, and who intercedes for us. He, he goes cross, resurrection, ascension, and intercession. Um, so Christ, it's, it's Christ's ongoing activity as the one who intercedes for us that functions as our, I would say, the basis of our security, um, that, that is, as long as we are um, sort of in, in Christ, we have him as our high priest interceding for us on our behalf. Um, so that the standards of not committing idolatry and the standards of confessing your sin to the high priest, i.e. the, the one who will intercede for you, uh, remain. Sorry, had to mute myself because we're running by in the hall. Um, okay, so I, 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 st- I, I want to go back to that big picture thing again, though, real fast, right? Because the question is, the central question seems to be, if we're created by God, we're created in his image, we know that he exists, we know that we're lawbreakers, um, and then, you know, do you know that um, immediately? Like, is that something you are sort of, you know, so deeply and intuitively that you could could appeal to that with anybody, like anyone on the street, you could, like, sort of, they would understand what you're talking about. I think that is the case. Anyway, um, so the question, though, is, uh, so how are we just before this God? Yeah. And and now you and I would both agree that there that that you could say perform good works that do you no good, right? So there are people who are say not saved at the end, um, but yet do but live righteous lives and you know any kind of external sense, right? They they're they're obedient to the law sure. or you know whatever. So um, so ultimately it it can't be that your works save you because if that's the case, you really have an like an, a never ending like staircase to, to climb up, right? I mean, it would, it would just be never ending. But, but that said, even though you're not saved by your works, you said Christians are obligated to do them. So isn't that a paradox? How do you resolve that tension? Paul said it, yeah, in Romans 8. But, okay, um, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't but, yeah, Lutherans I'm, the one who uh, hold the paradoxes? What's up, you know? <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, so here's how I'd reconcile it. Um, and this is, um, I, I, I've got a lot of this vocabulary from John Barclay from his work, uh, Paul and the Gift, um, where he talks about the different ways that gift giving, um, and in parallel, the diff- different ways that languages of grace um, 
can uh, be configured. And he, he talked about six or seven, six six different ways to talk about grace. And one of them is look, grace is incongruous, right? So one way to talk about grace is that grace is given to people who don't merit it. Um, sometimes grace um, means that it is it causes its goal. So then you that grace is effectual. Um, sometimes when some people are talking about grace, they just mean it's like super lavish, um, stuff like that. One of the ways that we often talk about grace, we think that grace is just by definition something that comes with no strings attached or else it's not grace, right? So that for someone to say, oh, it's pure grace or sheer grace often means in our kind of current cultural context means that if it's, if it's by grace, it can't come with obligations because then it wouldn't be grace, right? That sort of thing. Um, yeah, I think there's a difference too between something like receiving it, but then, um, I don't know. I won't say keeping it. Well, uh, so that might be that's, difference. that's one of Barclay's points is that, um, receiving the gift. So, so let me back up. So one thing he would say is, look, grace is not by definition, a no strings attached thing. So he spends hundreds of pages demonstrating this. So if you don't believe me, I get it. Go read John Barclay's book. Um, but one of his big points is that grace um, is not a, by definition, no strings attached thing. But he said, he, he, he argues that's actually basically a modern concept um, that, that often grace or gift language assumed within it that the recipient was then obligated to the giver. Mm. Um, so that his, his line is that the grace of God is incongruous, meaning God's, God's grace was given to people who didn't merit it. But... Once that unworthy recipient received it, the reception of that grace obligated the person toward mm. the giver, God, and that one of the gifts of God is the Spirit. And the Spirit then activates the person to actually be able to meet the obligations that God requires. Yeah. So and as Luther... His, his catchy way of saying it is that God's grace is unconditioned, but not mm. unconditional. Uh, yeah, I mean, as Lutherans, you know, when, when we talk about this sort of thing, yeah, we, you know, we, we talk about the justification, you know, by grace through faith thing and, you know, then kind of what to do after that, you know, and, and you can't, it's hard to read Paul's letters and all the exhortation he offers without, you know, getting the sense that upon the proclamation of the gospel, the believer um, is called to be obedient to the law of God. Um, you know, what, what else would the believer be, right? Um, so it's really not a matter of whether or not the Christian should be obedient to the law of God. I think it's a question of um, who gets the credit for that obedience. Um, so sure. for us, you know, what we should be saying is that this is the work of the Spirit. You know, Paul says you can't, yes. you know, no, no one who has yes. the Spirit would ever say Jesus is cursed, and you can't say that Jesus is blessed without the Spirit. Right. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, whatever, whatever works, you, we, we kind of joke and say, look, whatever works you do, you don't get credit for them, but whatever evil you do, you get all the blame. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a passivity in the reception of grace. There's a passivity in the doing of good works. And yet, um, and yet we are people of means. And so we should continue to speak about good works as something that Christians ought to be doing. Because if it's never said, uh, then why would it necessarily be the case that, you know, someone ought to be uh, doing them. So the question, I mean, this really does get into James, even though we haven't talked about it. I mean, this is the situation with James where he's talking about how faith without works is dead, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that fair yes. to draw that that line at this point? I mean, I don't know that James was offering advanced theological insight, but it was just sort of common sense that he's speaking to Christians 
which is maybe is a, a, a bit of a difference between, say, Romans and James or something like that. Um, sorry, if you heard my kids uh, yelling in my hallway. All right. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that James and Paul, just to get to the heart of it, I, I, don't, think I don't think there's any contradiction between James and Paul because I think the, the arguments they're making are different. Um, yeah. The argument that Paul is making is, look, here are how Gentiles belong to the covenants of God. He is saying that Gentiles belong to the covenant in which God is, is uh, the covenant maker. Um, they belong in this covenant relationship without having to do works of the Mosaic law um, for a few reasons. A, because at this stage of the story, the Mosaic law only dispenses a curse. The Gentiles don't need to opt into the law because that would only put them under the Mosaic curse. Also, when God made his promise to, to Abraham, he said, look, Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so if a Gentile doing the law sort of turns that Gentile into a Jew in some sense, which is what Paul says in, in Galatians, that for a Gentile to, to do the law is for a Gentile to Judaize. Mm. So this is a really important premise. For a Gentile to do the Mosaic law is for that Gentile in some sense to become a Jew or to Judaize or to live Jewishly. But Paul's whole point is, well, that would nullify God's promise to Abraham because God's promise to Abraham was to include Gentiles. And so if Gentiles get to belong to the covenant as Gentiles, then they don't need to become Jews first mm. via doing of the Mosaic law. Um, so there's that. And then there's also, I think, the more kind of classic reformational, and actually this is not just a reformational point, this is something that Aquinas says and, and Augustine says, but that um, in our current stage of just existence, or anthropologically, we are corrupted and our flesh is sort of hostile to God. And so doing the law, even if one did it perfectly, that wouldn't correct your corrupted nature. Mm. Um, only the spirit can do that. In other words, to say it differently, um, you might be able to keep the law perfectly, but that wouldn't get you resurrected. Yeah. Only God's spirit can resurrect you. That sort of idea. So then that's, that's the, to, for me, as I read the Testament, that and Paul's letters, that's, that's the framework within Paul's critique of the Mosaic law, or it's not even really a critique of the Mosaic law. It's just a recognition of the in, in, incapacity of the law to resurrect somebody. So, um, or, so then James is saying something different. He's just having a different argument. He's saying, here's, here, you, can't, you can't profess faith and not obey. Just not how this works. Yeah. Um, so, so let me, so we yeah, might go yeah. over a little bit. Real, real short then, yes or no, is obedience necessary? Is obedience to the law necessary for Christians to be saved? Um, obli yeah, obedience to God is necessary, yes. Okay. And then uh, how do we know, what, what is and the those standard? obligations are met not on your own white knuckling, but, but as Paul says in Romans yeah. 12 and 13, by the leading of the Spirit and by co-crucifixion with the Messiah. And how do we know what works we ought to be doing? Where would we go? Do we look to, for example, the civil government, uh, you know, the uh, philosophers of the age, uh, the, the civil laws on the books? Um, you know, my answer is, well, you do your very best to understand the Old Testament uh, and what applies and what doesn't. And I had a conversation with Joel McDermott on our last podcast about, you know, theonomy. And that's, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a capital T theonomist, but I'm sympathetic to a number of the arguments they make. But what would you say? Where, where you know, where do you go? I mean, you, you know, if you say we have to obey, obey what, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I, I would say a um, number of good places to start. Maybe start with Matthew 5 through 7. 
um, and then move on to Galatians 5 and 6 with the fruit of the Spirit. Move on to Romans 12 and 13, um, in which Paul may be even quoting some Jesus tradition. Uh, I w- th- those are great places to start. Yeah, I think that would be enough to, to uh, last a lifetime. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time. Uh, Paul, where can people uh, find you? They can go to HBU and get their MDiv these days, I hear. Yeah, you can get an MDiv. At, uh, HBU has a seminary. This is the craziest thing in the world. No one knows this. So, and if people want to follow you on Twitter. Yeah, look up Paul Thomas Sloan on Twitter. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, you could look me up on Twitter, become my fifth follower. Uh, nice. If you want, yeah, I, I I'm just looking can't. for twelve ninety six. Hey, you that's could be, you can be number twelve ninety six, guys. Dude, I'll I'll be twelve ninety six. I just okay, I just can't get on. I just can't do the Twitter thing, man. It's just okay, too. I, I don't know. I it's it. I think I think people are predisposed to do Twitter or not from birth, and I just can't overcome my my predisposition against it. But um, yeah, man. Well, great talking to you. We'll uh, yeah, we'll really put some music talk. on the end of this and make it all sound fancy for the podcast. But uh, nice. sounds good. In the meantime, uh, everyone uh, listening, thanks so much for for chiming in on Facebook Live or for following us on the podcast. Again, go to KPFT to learn how you can support KPFT, the, uh, the work that we do there, bringing community voices to you. And until next time, we encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed.